the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program on a really, really cold day. What a way to end the week, huh? I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. This is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions, life questions, um, whatever it is that's on your heart. We'll do the best that we can to find those answers. All you have to do is call us, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Send them that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. While you're paying attention to where you're going, you can hit one button that says call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our main number, 340 340- 9585. Hope you've having a great week. And until it got so cold this morning, I was doing just great. Uh, tonight is Friday. We're going to be doing our uh, weeknight Bible study. We're in the New Testament tonight. Hebrews, I'm going to finish chapter 2. Uh, Sunday, I'm going to be in uh, finishing Luke chapter 10. So I get to finish a couple of chapters this weekend. We'd love to see you. You can watch the services at calvarysa.com if you're too cold to get out of your house. Well, let's get right to some questions that we have uh, sent in to us. Here is a question from our email inbox from Scott. He says, Pastor on with the current wave of socialism in our nation and a proposed move to introduce a new Green Deal package to Congress with sweeping changes proposed in income equality so that everyone, and this is in parentheses, or in quotes, so that everyone can enjoy equal wealth, begs this question, is socialism biblical in any way? Um, He says, I think not. The most obvious answer, I think, is that there will never be an answer to it as long as some people either cannot or will not participate in making wealth happen. Uh, And then he gives an example um, uh, from um, the early days of our country. I don't need to include that. Um, Scott, you answered the question in Mark chapter 14, verse 7. It says, the poor you will always have. That's Jesus speaking. And the truth is that, that the poor have always been. And all of these misguided efforts, um, I'm going to do as well as I can not to get political here, but all of these misguided efforts to spread the wealth are missing the point. Um, no socialism is not biblical in any way. Uh, when Christians are walking with Jesus, when they are being blessed, whether it's spiritually or materially, Christians walking in the Spirit will be generous people. 
Uh, I know we here at Calvary Chapel, while we're certainly not rich and by any stretch of the imagination, we do everything free so we're helping people who can't afford stuff. Churches have always been leaders in providing benevolence to the people who need it. Our hearts are kind and generous and we want to help people. But but we also have to remember both sides of this equation. Um, if you won't work, you won't eat. That's what Paul says. And since uh, the Bible is just as firm on that as taking care of others, it's our job as Christians to find the biblical balance. So the truth is there's always going to be poor people. There's always going to be people that will not work. Uh, there's going to be other people who work and, and are successful but are stingy. Uh, both of those extremes are not of the Lord. So what we need to do is earn our own money. Um, I, I think it is uh, unbelievably brazen for these um, who are now proudly socialists. I, I'm old enough that I remember a time when if the word socialist was used, uh, the, the first image that came to mind was Benito Mussolini back in World War II time. Um, he was an enemy, and socialism has always been considered uh, the, the enemy of the free market system. The free market system has served us well. We have been the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth for many, many, many years. Uh, I don't know whether that's true or not any longer, uh, but socialism is not uh, a biblical perspective. So I hope that answers your question, uh, Scott. Uh, you know, poverty is something that is beyond our ability to deal with. We can help, but people have to also. Sometimes poverty is used by the Lord to bring people to him. So I hope that helps a little bit, Scott. Thank you. Let's go to Cedar Park, Texas, and talk with Steve on line one. Steve, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Uh I may be breaking up. I'm not really sure. But I had a nope, question. Here you find Steve. Oh, um, I've been reading uh, Proverbs and uh, reading chapters uh, 8 and 9. And um, they're really good. And as always, I, I go to see what you have to say about them um, through your website. And my question is, I, I saw and how you put both folly and wisdom were up high, loud, um, so God, I know He doesn't He doesn't uh, promote uh, sin and folly, but He gives He gives equal time for us to make that choice. Was Solomon when Solomon wrote Proverbs? Was this after he kind of shied from God um, and then you know gained this insight, or was it before he decided to have a thousand wives? But I I would say it would be. Um, after, because he was, I guess, in the first uh, nine chapters, kind of talking to his son about um, wisdom and, and evil. So I just wanted to get an idea, um, which is which would be good because it gives us a chance if we if we had been on that uh, road to folly, that we still had that we have that chance of, uh, of wisdom and righteousness, which is always uh, good to know. Uh, that's my yeah, question, Steve. and uh, thank you. Thank you, Steve. God bless. Uh, Steve, you've got it. You've got it just backwards, though. Um, I mean, it would be it would be great um, if if it worked out the way you thought it did. But Proverbs was actually written um, when Solomon was a pretty young king, when his heart was completely for the Lord. And if you look at Proverbs correctly, this this it's it's a poetic book. So uh, he's giving general principles for life. Now, he's writing from a wisdom that was given to him by God, a wisdom that exceeded any man who'd ever lived or whoever will live. Now, it's a stunning thing to say, but, but Solomon was the smartest man who's ever walked the face of the earth, except for perhaps Adam before the fall. Solomon was given wisdom beyond anything that we can understand. And, and this young man was working his way uh, through, through this treasure of wisdom that God provided for him. Uh, and Proverbs was actually written when he was a young king, uh, and and uh, it, it remains a very, very instructive book. The book that was written at the end of his life when he was an old man uh, was Ecclesiastes. And I think by comparing the two books, 
you can see um, the, the work that God was doing in him and through him. Uh, I think the story for Solomon is, as he writes Proverb, with all of this magnificent wisdom, um, uh, wisdom is never enough. As, as Christians, uh, having the Holy Spirit, which Solomon didn't have. Now, he obviously wrote the Proverbs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But wisdom wasn't enough. And pretty soon, in his pursuit of wisdom and in his pursuit of pleasure and in his pursuit of joy, all begun by his accumulation of pagan wives who introduced the, the worship of false idols, of false gods. So the wisdom didn't keep him out of trouble. The wisdom didn't keep him close to the Lord. And I think one thing that we have to remember, Steve, is that the wisdom that God provides is only available to those who are walking in the Spirit, who are walking in fellowship with Jesus. The minute we get, and I'm going to be very blunt here, the minute we get some distance between us and Jesus, we get spiritually stupid. And we make some really, really bad choices. Such was the case with Solomon. Now, when we go into Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes, uh, we've got that series of studies on um, on our website as well, Steve. Uh, but but uh, it was such a, a great study for our church. It, it sort of transformed our church at the time um, b- because we were dealing with a man who had everything and yet blew it. And the book of Ecclesiastes is just this old man looking back on a a life that was squandered, a life that was wasted. And all he could think about was it's all meaningless. Everything apart from God is without value, a chasing after the wind. And as you get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, what you see is his his acknowledgement that, you know what, I look back and I wasted all that time, I can't have it back. But here's what I can tell you, and here's the wisdom coming from heaven again. Everything is meaningless if it isn't for Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And that principle works so well in our lives, Steve. So um, maybe you can enjoy uh, Proverbs after your study. Go right to um, Ecclesiastes and maybe miss the ups and downs (laughs) between those two books. It just goes to prove that having wisdom... Having wealth, he was the richest man who's ever lived. Uh, living in a time of peace. Um, uh, Israel never had a time of peace like under his reign. And yet none of that mattered because he chased after the things that he thought would make him happy, and it never did. One final thought, Stephen, you didn't ask this, but the accumulation of wives. When you study the, the, the one song, he wrote, he wrote a thousand songs, a thousand five songs. But there was only one song that God wrote, and we have record of it in our Bibles. It's the Song of Songs. And what that song tells us is that every minute that Solomon spent away from this one woman who, who had his heart, this was the, the woman he married, the woman that meant everything to him, and yet by sinning and accumulating wives and concubines, every minute he spent with a woman that wasn't this Shulamite, was a moment wasted and he deeply regretted it for the entirety of his life good call steve thank you very very much here is a question from nacho from our email inbox uh he says in regard to your study wednesday night in isaiah 6 could the seraphs in verse 2 be related to or similar to the living creatures in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 and 8. Um, you know, not sure the living creatures aren't identified as seraphs. I think what we don't understand is that there are all kinds of, of angelic beings, and even that's a broad description. The word seraph or seraphim means burning ones. And these are the ones who sort of were stewards over the holiness of God. It was it was sort of like they were the PA system of heaven, always around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Uh, so the seraphs are these magnificent angels who served at the throne of God. Nowhere else are we given any indication of angelic beings with six wings um, just here. So I just think we've got to get used to the fact that they are 
similar but different. There's different levels of power, different positions of privilege. Um, Michael the Archangel, uh, of course, is is um, notable for his power. He's Israel's protector. Uh, but but these seraphs seem to be in a position of privilege above even Michael. Gabriel is another, we assume, archangel, although we're not told that specifically, uh, who, who had the ministry of, of announcing Jesus. I love that he was the herald of Jesus. Um, and yet uh, these seraphs seem to be in a position that is uh, even different. When you go to Ezekiel and you begin the prophecy of Ezekiel, uh, he sees uh, other angelic beings that are impossible to describe, and yet they they too didn't have six wings. And um, the the reason for the six wings is described in that first or sixth chapter of of Isaiah. So um, that's all I got. Let's go to Gerald. He says, "Please, Pastor Ron, can you explain simply what sanctification is?" I get justification but don't understand how sanctification fits in. Gerald, I can do this so simply that that it'll make sense, I promise. Justification, you get what it is. We come to Jesus, we're born again, and we're cleansed of all of our sins. The way to remember justification is just as if I'd never sinned. So positionally, we're perfect. Sanctification is the process God brings us through here on earth until we stand before him. In other words, sanctification is becoming more like Jesus every single day. So sanctification, the word means literally to be set apart. And what we're set apart for is to walk with and walk for Jesus. That's our purpose. And as we do that, as we're with him every day, we become more and more like the one that we are close to. You know, when Paul writes that bad company corrupts good character, it's because people of good character hang around people of bad character. The bad character always influences those who who start out with good character. Well, in this case, it's just the opposite. We who are sinners by nature, we who fall uh, repeatedly throughout our life here on earth, when we spend time with Jesus, we become more and more like him. So that's what sanctification. Sanctification is walking out our salvation. Paul calls it work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what this process of sanctification really is. Now, Gerald, I'm a really practical, logical guy. And I learned very early in my Christian walk that being with Jesus was where the joy is. So there's a lot of benefits from walking with Jesus. Not only... In this process of sanctification, do I become more and more like him? But I also get blessed by his presence. I don't do bad things when I'm with Jesus. If I get angry or I I have a bad thought, I take that thought captive immediately. I don't sin in my anger. Why? Because I'm with Jesus. And so the sanctification process isn't something that we do. It's something God does in us. And I think a lot of times, Gerald, the the reason people struggle with sanctification is because they think of it as something I have to do. I remember, once we're saved, once we're born again, there's nothing we have to do. There's really nothing we can do. What we need to do is let Jesus work in us and through us. And what, what we will find out is that we're more and more like Jesus every single day. One other comment on this, uh, Gerald, one of the great advantages of of walking with Jesus in this process of sanctification is that the closer you get to him, I want to explain this carefully because it doesn't seem to make sense uh, on the surface, but the closer I get to him, the more like him I become, the uglier my heart becomes. Now, not in a self-defeating way, But you see, when you're close to the light and the closer you get to the light, then darkness in your heart is revealed. And, and, you know, things that that we might have just a few years ago considered, oh, those are just little tiny sins, no big deal. Uh, But that's why Daniel and why um, uh, Isaiah, seeing that, that marvelous vision of God, Daniel was just seeing an angel that was sent directly from by God, um, um, they fell down as dead. 
in the book of Revelation, John the Apostle, the, the disciple of love, the apostle of love, he too fell down as though dead because of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when I'm with Jesus, things that didn't used to bother me bother me even more. I understand the closer I get to him, the, the, the more holy he becomes. Now, it's, it's, obviously he's all holy, but, but in my view, from my perspective, he becomes holier. And there's, there's a growing sense of love. There's a growing sense of, of entitlement and privilege because I get to be with Jesus. But there's also a growing sense of the fear of God. I know what I'm capable of, Gerald, apart from Jesus. And I don't want to go down that road. So what I do is try to stay with Jesus as much as I can. Do I sin? Of course. We all do. But we don't have to sin. And if we're with Jesus, we won't. It's that simple. When we sin, it's because we moved. It's our fault. So, Gerald, I hope that explains sanctification really, really clearly. Here's a question from Ralph. He said, what exactly is taking communion in an unworthy manner? The reference, Ralph, is 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 27. Um, remember the letter to Corinth was a letter of rebuke and correction. Uh, if, you, if you just read it at its surface level, you, you'd think Paul was really, really angry and he's just scolding the church at, Corinthian, at Corinth. But, but the Corinthians uh, were very carnal. They, they lived for their flesh. Uh, and Paul was in that first letter correcting them from everything. When he gets to the part about communion, he's saying some of you have become sick and others of you have even died because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? It means they were partaking in communion. That's oneness with God. Greek word is koinonia. It's, it's, it's spiritual intercourse with Jesus. And they were doing it. You know, can you imagine? And we... we we talk about this all the time at Calvary Chapel. Uh, people will take the cracker, they'll take the cup, and they'll eat and they'll drink, but they won't make any change in their lives. They're, they're, they're guilty of sin. They know they're guilty of sin, but because everybody else has a cracker and a cup, they take it and they partake. And to partake of communion when you're living in willful sin is a dangerous thing to do even still. Now, don't misunderstand. God doesn't kill people now. But the idea is that when we partake of communion and we're far from the heart of God, then we're putting ourselves in a place where the protection is lifted from us. We're putting ourselves in a place where we're, we're literally left on our own because we're out of fellowship with Jesus. We're left on our own, or our own to fight an enemy who wants to destroy us. So they were taking communion with divisions among them. They were taking communion when... Christians were suing unbelievers and, and Christians alike in, in public court of law. Um, they were taking communion when there was willful and, and, and defiant sin going on. Um, there was a lack of unity. Uh, they were holding on to unforgiveness. And, and, and Paul is basically saying, if you take communion with a heart like that, then you're in a dangerous place. Now, Ralph... Um, you may not belong to a church like Corinth, but we do communion here at Calvary Chapel uh, on the first Sunday of every month. Um, I don't, I, I don't, we don't do it every week, um, one for time constraints, but, but, but I just don't want people to get so used to it that it becomes just a go through the motion thing. And one of the things I tell people all the time is, is that communion is a family celebration. And the only way that we can partake of communion is if we're believers, otherwise we have nothing to do with Christ. Well, the same thing is true when our fellowship is broken by sin. So the man or the woman who takes communion uh, with willful, unrepentant sin is is really in a, a very spiritually dangerous place. In Paul's day, it was also a physically dangerous place. Um, and I'm not so sure that that also isn't true. For people today. So I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Manuel wants to know, um, this is Manuel, not Manuel. Okay, I've only got two minutes, so I need to go to uh, another question. This will take a little bit longer. Um, Jack says, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
how is Pharaoh to blame what he did? Jack, read the account in in the book of Exodus. Um, it's true God eventually hardened Pharaoh's heart, but not before Pharaoh hardened his heart first. Seven times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh knew what was true. Pharaoh was being given counsel from, from his advisors to let Israel go. On some occasions, he made a decision to let him go and then changed his mind. And and he changed his mind because he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So finally, after the seventh time, God simply gave Pharaoh over to his heart. That's all he did. He gave Pharaoh over to his own heart. Now his heart was so hard by that time, there was no redemption. God knew it. So God simply took his hand off him. The same thing happens, Jack, to us. If we keep sinning and, and, and God keeps knocking on the door of our heart, he wants to come in. He wants us to get close to him. He wants us to repent. If we don't do it, at some point, God simply says, okay, it's what you want to do. I'm going to let you do it. And when God leaves us alone with ourselves, Jack, we are in real trouble. So we can't blame God for what Pharaoh did. God was patient with him, far more patient than any of us would have been. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program since we only have 30 minutes left in the week i think i figured out during the break why there's no calls everybody has gloves on and they can't push the button so take your gloves off and just make a call. Put your glove right back on. Here's the question that I couldn't get to from Manuel. Uh, he says, Pastor Ron, what is the difference in roles between an elder and a pastor? Uh, the reason I couldn't do this in just two minutes, uh, Manuel, is because we have a, 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 a sort of a flawed understanding in our church culture about what an elder is. When you read of elders... In the New Testament, Paul tells Timothy, tells Titus, go appoint elders in the churches. That word is really the same word that we understand as pastor, the overseer, uh, or, or, or the role of shepherding. So um, there shouldn't be any difference in roles. Now, here's what's happened in our church culture manual. Um, we've, we've taken elders and made a separate office for the elders, typically underneath the pastor, but advice and consent sort of in terms of their responsibility. So uh, I, I, I don't think there should be a role. Um, I have elders in my church. Um, uh, I've been blessed with faithful men who've uh, been with me for a very, very long time. Uh, but the the um, they're not pastors. I use them more like my board. Uh, legally, we have to have a board. To, to, we're incorporated, so legally there has to be a board. And um, they're, they're my board members, and these are men that I can go to. If I ever sinned, if I got in trouble, they're men that I could go to and know I would be dealt with in love and with respect, but also with with sternness in the sense of this is right and this is wrong. Uh, if I needed to step down, they would be the ones who would tell me they can't fire me, uh, but if if I am in a dangerous place spiritually, they would be the ones that I would go to. They also, all of my elders, men, will have teaching ministries here at Calvary Chapel, so they're very, very important to me. And uh, I just think if we go back to the uh, New Testament concept when elder is, we wouldn't have these problems. Let's go to Mason County and talk with Ron on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I want you to know it snowed up here this morning, so my hands are. Oh no! Okay. okay. <laughs> hey, don't don't tell don't tell Paula it snowed in Texas. She'll make me leave. <laughs> hey, in context of numerous times, God has no favorites. Romans two eleven and on. 
I'm mm-hmm. confused on rewards and crowns in heavens. I understand the Burma, the Bema seat and that. But can you clarify all that for me, please? Yeah, Ron. Um, um, you know, the, the principle is too much is given, much is required. So it's not a matter of privilege. It's just that God rewards our faithfulness here on earth with rewards in heaven. Now, the way I've always viewed this, and I may be way off, Ron, but, but boy, this has sure motivated me over the years. Uh, I like to think that when I stand at the Bema seat, there's going to be like this big cabinet that Jesus is going to open, and it's going to be full of crowns. And he's going to say, Ron, these are the crowns that I have for you. And the crowns that I will receive are rewards for those things that I was faithful in. I also think that there were, and I'm trying to keep these at a minimum, Ron, but I also think there will be crowns in there that he can't give to me. And you have to take those crowns and say, Ron, these crowns were intended for you, but because you weren't faithful, I had to give them to somebody else. And so it's not a, not playing favorites. It's just, a, okay, he's rewarding faithfulness. And, and Jesus tells two parables that indicate that our ability to enjoy heaven will be increased by virtue of what we do here on earth, or our ability to enjoy heaven will be decreased because of our unfaithfulness. We'll still get to heaven. First Corinthians chapter 3 says we'll, we'll still get saved. We're saved, but, but as though smoking. Um, uh, but but I think at that moment when we receive words, it will make a big difference. And it won't be one of those, well, I loved you more than I loved him, or I loved her more than I loved you. Uh, I, I just think it'll be, uh, you are faithful. Well done, my good and faithful servant. But we will not get rewards, Ron, for the things that we were not faithful in. You know, I've often wondered why Paula would send a white guy from Iowa and uh, a black woman from Los Angeles why he would send us to a Hispanic city in San Antonio, Texas. And sometimes I get the feeling that, you know, I'm here because somebody else wasn't faithful. And I get to be blessed as a result of of uh, of that calling. So uh, I hope that makes sense to you, Ron. Sir, I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. See, I want to go to heaven and not miss out on a single thing. Let's go to... Uh, Cindy on line two from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, I'm hoping you keeps cutting out really big. Oh, okay. Oh, your phone is cut out. Cindy, why not let me put you on hold till you see if you get your phone fixed, and then I'll go to Spicewood, Texas, and talk with Robert. Okay, thank you, Cindy. Let's go to Robert from Spicewood on line three. Where's Spicewood, Texas, Robert? Just outside of Austin. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, welcome to the show. Yeah. Well, it's been a long time since I called you and talked to you, but uh, my wife wants to come down and see you down in San Antonio. Just haven't made it there yet. Well, cool. Well, when you do, be sure to come up and give me a hug. I will absolutely do that. Okay. I have a question about the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, specifically the mustard seed and the leaven and the um, treasure in the field. Seems there's a, a popular interpretation of those, and one that the truth. And I'm just wondering what your take is on those particular parables. I'll yeah, thank you. Okay, Robert, thank you very much. Uh, I, I don't know about popular, but there's sure a lot of wrong interpretations of those, especially the mustard seed. You know, when when Jesus said that the mustard seed, though it's the smallest of all seeds. Uh, its planet grows in this big tree, and even the birds of the air can come and 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 make a home in its branches. Uh, I, I know pastors who are are sort of of the mega church movement to say, no, this is what we become. We become this this glorious big tree that's naturally only small, but God has blessed us so much that now all of the birds can come. Well, here's the problem with that: the birds are evil. Jesus gives the definition for the foundational foundational parable in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. And so the consistency of definition has to run through all of the parables. So the um, parable simply is saying that the church will grow unnaturally and there will be evil in the church. That's what this parable of the mustard seed is all about. It's, it's, it's abnormal growth, unusual growth, but it's also not holy growth or growth that's blessed by the Lord. It's simply 
unnatural and, and evil. Now, what we can do is we can look around at the world that we live in and, and the churches that we have experience with, and there's churches, the biggest church in this country is a church that, that is a huge tree, um, but, but there's evil lurking because people aren't taught the truth. And, and that's what Jesus was warning against. Um, the, the, the parable of the treasure in a field um, is, is, is basically the same thing as Matthew, I think, uh, 1346. Um, the parable of the pearl of great price, it's basically the same thing. It's a picture of what Jesus came to do. Um, the pearl of great price, uh, when a, a merchant went and found one of great value, he sold everything that he had and came and purchased it. Now, um, it's interesting that, and you didn't ask about the pearl, but but they go together. Uh, the pearl uh, was was uh, really um, uh, not esteemed at all by Jews, uh, and yet Gentiles craved it. And the bigger the pearl, um, the more power the, the king was said to have. So they would have merchants finding these these huge pearls, uh, and they would pay whatever they had to pay to get it because it was a, an ego thing for them. Um, well, well, we're the pearl of great price. Um, the Church of Jesus Christ, we're the pearl of great price. We're of great value. And of course, God sold everything he had. He sent his son, his only son, to buy us that, that we would be the treasure that he he recovers. Uh, the treasure in the field is the same thing. Uh, Jesus left. His treasure was hidden in the field. Uh, but we're the treasure, the church, the, the unknown, unseen church at the time. We're the treasure um, that that uh, Jesus left behind. Um, it wasn't until after Jesus was with his Father in heaven that the church was born on the day of Pentecost. And uh, his treasure has been revealed uh, ever since. Now, I forgot what the other one was that you said, um, Robert, so I, I apologize uh, let's go to Lavernia, Texas, and talk with Bill on line one. Bill, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, good hearing from you, man. Uh, we did get to uh, come to your afterglow service uh, in December, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, we did not get a chance to come see you because your your flock just came around us and hugged us and loved us and got to talking to some <laughs> of them and. Uh, had a mutual friend, and so we, we we didn't get to see you before you got out of there. But uh, me and my wife, Jenna, were there, and we enjoyed the Afterglow service. So uh, Good. Thank you, Bill. I'll tell you, we missed you. But hey, uh, also, I've got one ver- a couple of verses here, uh, mainly a word study probably more so. Do you see the uh, the verse in the Old Testament, Esau, uh, I uh, Jacob I love, Esau I hated, and the verse in the New Testament of, Jesus saying, if you do not hate your mother, brother, father, do uh, you see that as, as relatable to the same uh, meaning as far as positional uh, meaning? Uh, am I on the right track there, or does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, I, I get what you mean, Bill. But next time you come, you got to come give me a hug. But other than that, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take your question. Yeah, uh, Jew, Jew, Jews would have understood this kind of, of, of statement a lot more easily than we who are Gentiles do. Uh, the idea, Esau I've loved, uh, I mean, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated, uh, it's relational, it's propositional. Uh, it wasn't that God, who is love, could love one more than any other, but his love could benefit one more than the other. Esau, because he sold God out for a bowl of stew, God couldn't pour out his love on him the way that that he could on on Jacob. Now, it's interesting to me because Jacob wasn't very lovable either. But God understood that um, uh, Jacob was his, his chosen vessel. Jacob would have that wrestling match with Jesus and get saved. And, and, and so God was able to pour out his love on and through Jacob for the rest of his life. Esau would never receive the love. Jews would have understood that very clearly. Now, in the New Testament, when Jesus says anyone who loves his mother, brother, sister, or family more than me isn't worthy of the kingdom of God, what he's talking about there, Bill, is priorities. Our priority has to be Jesus ahead of family. Jesus himself proved that 
when his family went to him to take control of him because they thought he was crazy. And the people came in and said, Lord, your mother and your brother and your sisters are out there. And Jesus said, who are my mother, my brother, and my sisters? And he pointed to those who were listening to his, his words. And he said, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So it, it was, it's, it's a relative thing. I want to love you, but you won't let me love you. So I'm going to pour out all of my love on Jacob. I want to love you, but you won't let me love you. So I'm going to love those who come into the kingdom of God. You know, Bill, the, one of the things that we have to always remember is that Jesus loves everybody who chooses to go to hell. And it breaks his heart. Isaiah 28 says judgment is a strange work to God. It breaks his heart. He would have loved to have loved everybody the same way. He simply can only really pour out his love on those who will receive it. So that's the idea there. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's what I kind of see. And also, I always tie in with what God already knew what he was going to have and spoken what he was going to do with Jacob. And what the position was for, uh, and for the future, he had, he had the plans already. So, yep. and that's why I kind of related to the positional thing as well. You, you don't put other people in front of me in the New Testament, but same way yep. as Jacob is going to be over his brother in the Old Testament already. It was already prophesied. So. Yeah, yeah, and you know, Bill, uh, uh, God's rejection of of Esau was based on his foreknowledge. He knew that Esau was going to sell him for a bowl of stew. In the same way, God's acceptance of Jacob was also based on his foreknowledge. So um, God knows what we're going to do. And and because of that, he won't remove his love from those of us who are going to serve him. But he can't pour out his love on those who are going to reject him. So we see that premise all the way through uh, our scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. Great question, Bill. Thank you very much. All right. God bless you, man. We're looking forward to seeing you again one day. Okay, you too. God bless. 340-9585. You know how much pleasure it gives a pastor when somebody comes and says, I couldn't even get to you because people were loving on us, and that's that's our church. It's a wonderful, loving group of people, and sometimes we're some almost out of control with with our, our love sometimes. So, um, oh, I just got to texter my producer did from Paula she heard that snow remark it snowed so be careful I don't want Paula to ditch me <laughs> let's go to a question from Cindy's not back okay Cindy's having some phone problems here is a question from Jason hey, this is what I was just talking about Jason says is predestination biblical yes it is Jason um, there's no problem I think Every real Christian understands that predestination or election, uh, the words are interchangeable, uh, is a biblical concept. Um, the, the, the place that we get into trouble is the basis of God's choice. So God chooses some to go to heaven. God doesn't choose others to go to hell. It's just that God knows that those who are going to spend eternity in hell are people who wouldn't choose him. Why? Because God knows. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, 1 Peter chapter 1, the first two verses are very clear. His election is based on his foreknowledge. But make no mistake, predestination is a biblical concept. It's just that the reformers, the, 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 those who are reformed in theology, uh, Calvinists in particular, they just don't understand the character of God and don't balance the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of predestination with the character of God. So yes, predestination is biblical, but the Calvinist construct of predestination, Jason, is really, really problematic. I've seen it ruin a whole bunch of people's um, Christian lives. The, the fruit that they were once producing, they, they, they find this doctrine, it makes sense to them. Uh, and, and they lose a God who loves the world. They even change the words to try to prove it. Uh, Vince wants to know, how can I accept the Bible as the word of God when there seems to be so many contradictions in it? Well, Vince, let me ask you. Name one contradiction. Now, there are some scribal errors. There are some Hebrew words in particular that are very difficult to translate because the, the manuscripts are very hard. There's, there's in some places only a little dot or, a, or a, 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 a little accent on the end of a word. 
um, that makes it mean one thing as opposed to another. Um, sometimes the counting, remember the manuscripts have gone through generations of scribes um, and, and there were, there were mis- differences between numbers a few times, but those are all minor things and don't do anything to damage the text. But the, most of the time, Vince, when people talk about the contradictions, um, they haven't read the Bible. I'm I'm 28 years in Jesus this month, and um, I still haven't found a contradiction. So I would I want to ask you which contradictions. The other thing I would ask you is, um, be honest enough to find out for yourselves. Don't listen to what other people say. You know when people are trying to discredit Christians or Christianity. Oh, you know the Bible is just a book written by men. It's full of contradictions. There really isn't any. There's nothing that isn't explainable. And Vince, there's so much information readily available um, online. Um, you put in uh, Bible contradictions or Bible difficulties, and you're going to find all kinds of of uh, really good websites that will reconcile what you believe to be a contradiction. So um, all I can do is challenge you. Uh, Your eternal destiny, Vince, depends on it. The one thing that changed my life more than anything else in my 20 years with Jesus is wrestling with this very question. Is the Bible the Word of God? And because I said earlier, I'm logical. If it didn't make sense, then I didn't want any part of it. So I had to determine in my own mind that this was or was not the Word of God. It took me a little less than three months before I was so completely convinced, I mean completely convinced, that it didn't make sense to keep checking it out anymore. And from that time forward, Vince, I've never had a single doubt about my salvation. I've never had a single doubt about the veracity of the Word of God. Life is pretty easy to determine what God wants me to do. If if I don't accept the Bible as the Word of God, then i got to figure it out. And eventually what we end up doing is deciding that we get to decide what's valid and what's not. So find out. It's the most important thing as a Christian that you can do. Herb says... There's only one second coming, yet many still insist that the rapture comes before the second coming. It's wrong, but so many people believe it anyway. Herb, I believe it. You're right. There is only one second coming. The the rapture is not Jesus coming to the earth again. Jesus is going to have two advents this earth. One of them we've already benefited from. Jesus came into this world as a human. One of the things I'm going to talk about tonight in Hebrews, the end of chapter 2, it's the way Jesus helped us by coming to this earth, by becoming human. That's his first coming. His second coming, you can read about in Revelation chapter 19. The rapture of the church isn't a coming at all. The rapture of the church is a call where we're going to go to meet him in the air. He's not coming to earth three times. He's only coming twice. But in between, at the end of this age, when the rapture happens, we're going to be caught up in the air to meet him. So that's not a coming at all. So, again, you need to look a little more critically, a little more honestly. Jesus is coming for his church, but he's not coming here. We're going there. Can you imagine that moment when we'll meet him in the air? There's lots of other reasons, Herb, that the rapture of the church has got to be pre-tribulation. And I know you don't believe it, but be honest and open your Bible and dig in for yourself. One thing I can suggest, it's absolutely free, go to our website, calvarysa.com, and you can... um, beginning with the, the the first study in Revelation chapter 4. 
Um, every time I teach the book of Revelation, I think I've taught it three times, uh, that's the place where I teach on the rapture why it must be a pre-tribulation rapture. The evidence is overwhelming, why the character of God couldn't permit anything else. And uh, Vince, I'd ask you to, or her rather, I'm sorry, I'd rather, I'd convince you to, uh, if I could, to, to go and listen to that study. It'll be worth your while. Here is a question anonymously. We've got, I think, two minutes, a little over two minutes left. Um, he says, or she says, I know you're not a universalist, but what would be so bad about God taking everyone to heaven? Um, you know, that's a very emotional, um, sentimental argument, and I understand it. Uh, I understand the person whose heart so wants people to enjoy the best that God has for them. Um but it wouldn't be good if we got to heaven and found out, hey, everybody got in. It wouldn't be good because it would prove that Jesus isn't God, that Jesus lied. He said he's the only way to heaven. He said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he'll no way, in no way inherit the kingdom of God. If Jesus could lie to us, Anonymous, then we're all lost. So here's what I want you to think about. Heaven is going to be a place of perfection. How could God let anybody in who hadn't been washed by his blood? Then heaven wouldn't be perfect. He said there's no darkness. There's no sadness. That wouldn't be the case. If we got to heaven and found out that everybody got in and God was just sort of tricking us, then we would be completely bereft of any knowledge of what God wants for us. It would prove the Bible not to be the Word of God. God offers salvation to everyone, but we have to accept it. We have to receive it. And if we don't receive it, then because we are all eternal beings, then we're all going to spend eternity separated from God. God honors the choice we make in life, Anonymous, um, in eternity. It doesn't give us free will to reject them here and then force us to spend forever with them. It wouldn't be a good thing at all. God would not be fair, just, or holy. Hey, thanks for tuning in this week. It's been a great week on the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Have a great weekend in church. Serve somebody and be blessed. We'll see you next week on AM 630, The Word. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.